I am convinced that the church needs a healthy theology of joy and having fun. I believe that Jesus laughed and enjoyed life to the full and that church people who really know Jesus will be able to do the same. Now, in that, I'm not diminishing the seriousness of the weightier issues that we deal with. Heaven and hell are real. Uh, life and death are real. Those are important weighty matters that we all have to deal with. However, we, are also be, we have also been given abundance of joy and fullness of life by our Lord. And so when we talked last week, there's a time to laugh and there's also a time to mourn. And that's a tension that Christians have to be able to deal with. I understand that it's hard to have fun when you're sad. And there are times that it's appropriate to be sad. Philippians chapter 3, Paul calls us to know Christ in the power of his resurrection, that's celebration, but also in the fellowship of his suffering. And I'm convinced that there are some things that cannot be understood in your relationship with God until you go through the crucible of suffering or pain. Someone has said that God can't use people greatly until he has broken them greatly because it's in those moments that our lives change and it grows. And Christianity, unfortunately, is marked by avoidance of pain when it should be marked by triumph over pain. How many are hearing me? It's not about avoiding the struggle. It's about winning over the struggle. And that's what Psalm 30 is all about. Verse 11, you turn my wailing into dancing. You remove my sackcloth and clothe me with joy. A key to understanding Psalm 30, where we're going to land on this morning, is to understand the poetic devices that are used in the poetic books of the Bible. One of those is parallelism. And in Psalm 30, it's antithetical parallelism or reverse parallelism. What does that mean? It means that parallelism are two thoughts that run together. Antithetical or reverse parallelism is when it's going one way and the parallel thought goes another way. It's used by contrast. Now walk through Psalm 30 with me and watch how this happens. In verse 3, God brought the psalmist up from Sheol after he was headed down to the pit. Verse 5 God's anger is for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And then our text, verse 11, God turned mourning into dancing, took off the sackcloth and put on clothing of celebration, clothed him with joy. And because of God's kindness, the psalmist says in verse 12, I will no longer be silent. So what I want us to think about this morning is, whether we're wearing the clothes for our life experience, for where we are today, that there are different ways that God clothes us, and what are you wearing? Now, his goal is to move you from mourning to dancing. We're not called to mourning, we're called to dancing. We're going to move from sorrow in the night to joy in the morning. We're going to move from darkness to light. It's always a progression. So hear me this morning. Your home address is not the place of mourning. That's a visit on your journey. Your home address needs to be one of joy. And I want to talk about in this idea of joy, the reality of pain, but understanding that he wants to change us from mourning to dancing. How does that happen? 
Well, the first thing that happens is that we need to expect to change our clothes. Nothing happens till you expect something to change. We wear different clothes for different reasons. Culture has changed. When I was in Bible college, we were expected to wear a coat, tie, shirt every day to class. And when it was really hot, you had to get a special dispensation from the administration to not wear a tie or to not wear a coat. It was part of the culture. It's what everyone did. I remember coming to the church to work in my first position, and the lead pastor is out on a, a Ford tractor pulling a seven-foot flail mowing grass wearing dress shoes, dress slacks, and a white shirt because he thought that's what pastors should wear. And if there had to be a hospital call, he wanted to be ready to go. Now today, that would look silly because our culture's changed. How many of you have noticed that we have kind of an eclectic dress code for the platform? How many know what eclectic means? Doesn't mean electrocuted. It means things that don't necessarily fit together. So I wear a coat a tie, dress shirt, dress slacks every Sunday morning. Why? Because that is the law of God if you're going to heaven. If the rapture happens this morning, there's only four of us that are going. Not at all. Not at all. Why? Because my generation, this is how I went to church, I like ties. How many of you like my tie? What am I going to do with these if I don't no, I like it, and I do it because it's what I'm comfortable with. And a younger generation is comfortable with casual clothes, and so on the platform it's casual. For this reason, I want whoever comes in the door to see someone that looks like them. And you understand when you worship here, it's not about what you wear, it's who you worship. It's about reaching out to him. And you ought to be dressed, though, in a way that's appropriate. It is possible to come to church and be dressed inappropriately. So I'm not concerned what clothes you wear. I'm just concerned that you wear clothes. <laughs> there is appropriate and inappropriate dress. I wear something different when I go hunting than when I go to a funeral. I did preach a revival in Missouri once, and on the last night of the revival, I knew nothing was going to happen good because everybody was dressed in their camo gear, and they're ready to go out and drive for hunting the next day. Deer season opened, so I just gave a quick alder call. <laughs> and we moved on. There are schools that talk about why we wear what we wear, the purpose of clothing. Textile schools suggest 10 reasons for wearing clothing. Here they are, protection, safety, uniform, style and color, status, sanitation, uh, decoration, modesty, insignias, and identification. Now, the Utah Education Network reduced it down to five categories as to why we wear clothes. Number one is adornment. Number two is protection. Number three is identification. Four is modesty. Five is status. And so when we look at clothing, our clothing communicates a message that should be appropriate to the life experience that we're in. When I was in high school, I was in marching band. I'm a Cedar Rapids Kennedy Cougar, green and gold. And it was green and it was gold. I was in marching band and we had the uniforms with the stripes and the shoes and the spats. How many know what a spat is? That's not what I just did. It's what you wear on your shoe. And then we had these big hats, these big plume hats, fuzzy hats, you know, that you wear. How many have seen those? And we would, 
start off, our big deal with our band director was a rare back. So it was one, two, rare back, and then we'd march and that's really fun to do. One, two, rare back and march and play. And it looked to probably look cool. We looked great on the field. We looked perfect. But if I wore that in here this morning, how many of you be worried about my mental state? <laughs> There'd be something that's out of whack because your dress has to be appropriate to the moment. Are you wearing the right clothes? So I want you to understand there are clothes that are appropriate for mourning and there are clothes that are appropriate for dancing. So I need to pause for a minute and talk to you about something Christians don't like to talk about and that's the power of pain. We need to talk for a moment about the power of pain to understand the change. This would be a sermon unto itself or a series but there are some things that cannot happen in your spiritual life without pain. As I've already referenced, Philippians chapter 3, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. And there's some things that you can't enter into spiritually in a relationship with Jesus until you've been through a crucible of suffering. He wants you to experience the fellowship of his suffering. There's pruning, chastening that happens in our relationship to God that only comes through pain. Counselors have said it this way for years. Until the pain of remaining the same is greater than the pain of change, people choose to remain the same. We don't grow on the mountaintop. We grow in the valley. Our life develops through the things that we struggle with. Testimonies of God's faithfulness come out of trial, not out of not out of having no problems i preached a message one year titled why you don't want a miracle do you know who needs a miracle someone who's in a dire situation and what kind of response would we get to a speaker who would step up here and say so glad to be with you this morning just want to share my story i've never struggled a day in my life i get a raise every three days i have so much money i don't know what to do with it i have everything i want I have a beautiful wife, beautiful children. They're all perfect in every way. My mother was Mary Poppins. <laughs> I'm just wonderful. We wouldn't even care, right? We wouldn't even care because it's not real. The only place you see that is on Facebook. <laughs> Those stories aren't real. You can be perfect on Facebook. They'll show the great ride at the roller coaster and leave out puking in the garbage. They don't put those together. You only see the good things. Life isn't like that. It's not real. We all have struggles. Listen to what 1 Peter 5, 8 through 10 says. Be alert and self-controlled. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. How many have heard that? The devil goes about like a roaring lion. Let me see your hands. You've heard that before? We've heard that. We quote it all the time. Resist him standing firm in the faith. How many of you want to resist him? I do. I want to beat him. And um, your brothers, know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. How many of you want to go to heaven? So far, I'm on with this. I'm in. Let's do this. The devil's coming around. We're going to whip him. There's battles around the world. But God's called us to glory. Don't stop reading. Amen. Here's what it goes on to say. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, 
and steadfast. That's what God does. If you want to be, listen to me, if you want to be strong, firm, and steadfast, you're going to have to suffer for a little while. That's the avenue that it comes through. You're going to have to go through those challenges. And I want to say again, prosperity Christianity has missed the point when we preach the theology that epitomizes or reaches for the avoidance of pain. We're not called to avoid pain. We're called to triumph over it and win through it. Because it's only when they throw you into the fiery furnace that you will find a fourth man in the fire like the Son of God who walks with you and watch the ropes burn off. It happens in the fire. That's where the miracles take place. There's a man by the name of Scott Derrickson. He's an American film director, producer, screenwriter, and a professing Christian. I don't know him. Um, I, I know he's produced some movies that are a little odd. But he claims to be a Christian, and I want you to hear what he says about pain. I don't fear pain or failure anymore because I'm too grateful for the pains and failures of my past. Did you hear what I just said to you? I don't fear pain or failure anymore because I'm too grateful for the pains and failures of my past. <clears throat> they have made me who I am, and most of the good things in my life are a direct result of them. It's not avoiding, it's overcoming. You don't, listen, you don't have to fear the pain if you trust the master. You don't have to fear the pain if you trust the master. Pain is not our destination. Pain is not your identity. Don't make it your home. Don't accept pain as who you are. Too many people have embraced pain, failure, and suffering as who they are. How so? Um, hello, I'm Joe, and I'm an alcoholic. No, 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 no. When you're in Christ, you're a new creation. Well, I'm divorced. I have cancer. I have a broken family. I have been fired from my job. I'm a failure. No, 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 no. Don't let your pain define you. You are not identified by where you've been and the valley you've been through. You're identified by the God who redeemed you and lifted you up and reversed your direction and put you on a new course that honors his name and glorifies him. I read a blog about pain, and I don't know the faith experience of this author, but she was writing about one of her professors. She said, my prof works as a counselor at a pain clinic and commented about how patients who were dealing with chronic pain at a 10 uh, and could hardly get out of bed, how they act after they have a pain pump installed. Now, I don't know how many of you have had, but I'm curious this morning, sincerely curious, how many of you have had pain that you would, that you would define as a 10? It's as bad as it could be. And how many of you deal with chronic pain? I know there are a number of you deal with chronic pain. It's easy for someone who doesn't experience chronic pain to tell people who do how they should live. This professor goes on to say, after they have a pain pump installed, they go on and on about how they feel the best they felt in years, yet when asked how they would rate their pain, they still say there are four. So here's the professor's opinion, is that they were obviously free of pain, but had developed a pain identity where they couldn't imagine life without pain, so despite being pain-free, they still reported a four. That's somebody who's not dealt with chronic pain. The blog writer deals with chronic pain and has a different opinion. 
Don't tell someone how they should respond to their life when you've never walked on the road. Don't tell someone how to deal with their pain if you've not experienced where they are. Give them some grace and understand that you don't know all there is to know. She says, as someone who lives with chronic pain, I see this situation a lot differently. What I see is that after living life at a 10, a 4 feels really good. I can laugh and dance and play at a 4. I can ignore the pain at a 4 and not even think about it until I'm asked about it. Then stop and think and say, there's still some pain, but I'm okay. And then she says, while I disagree with his premise, I agree that sometimes we can take on a pain identity and allow that facet of our lives to take over our identity. It can be really difficult to think about our identity beyond the pain, to accept that there is more to life than the pain and not let the pain control every thought and decision. When we get focused on our illness and pain, it can take over our lives. But, but, we are so much more than our pain. Even with the pain, you can still be a great parent, a great spouse, a great student, a great employee. You just may have to do it differently than you did before. You may not be the one doing every single chore around the house and doing everything for everyone. You might not be the employee that works 60 hours a week and goes out of your way to show how awesome you are, but you are still great. You are so much more than your pain. And that's a message I want to drive home this morning. You are not the, you are not identified by what you've experienced. The scars that you bear are not your identity. You don't have to live life saying, I came from a broken home. I came from an experienced divorce. I have this disease or this problem because you are more than that. Amen. You are more than that. I have a friend Let me, let me come back to that. Here's what I know. You can try a lot of things, positive mental attitude, cognitive behavioral therapy that endeavors to replace cognitive disorders with clearer thinking, and some of those things will work when you try to change your thought, your direction, your plan of life. But there come times when you realize you can't pick yourself up by your own bootstraps anymore. Pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. What are you talking about? I don't have any boots. That's why in Matthew chapter, I'm sorry, in John, Je Jesus met a man who had been sick, lame for 38 years. Do you know what Jesus said to him? Do you want to get well? What a mean, of course he wants to get well. No, no, no. Some people don't want to get well. Do you know what happens if he gets well? His means of financial support goes away. A man who's not lame can't beg anymore. What's he going to do? 38 years. Where's he going to get into the job market? How's he going to provide for himself? Everybody knows him as the lame man that laid by the pool. And so Jesus asked a straight question. Do you want to get well? The, the, the essence of faith is do you expect to put off 
your clothes of mourning and put on clothes of joy? Are you expecting a change to come? And the thing that keeps people in bondage is they don't believe a change is going to happen. They believe that the way it's been, it will always be. And I'm here to serve notice on that lie from the devil that change can come to those who put their trust in Jesus. And your first step out of the darkness is to believe that he's going to change your clothes. You've got to expect that. Don't accept it as your identity. When you can't turn yourself around, he can turn you around. I said when he can't turn you around, you can turn yourself around. So what do you have to do? After you expect a change, you have to make a decision that you want to get rid of your sad clothes. That you want to get rid of them. That you want to be free of them. Now, sackcloth is appropriate for some days. There is a time for sorrow and weeping. It is inhuman to never sorrow. It is dysfunctional to never grieve. It is unhealthy to deny your pain. I'm uncomfortable with funerals that are too much celebration. I know it's crazy. Oh, it's to celebrate. They died. We're going to celebrate. Have you been to those? It's like, oh, it's all fast songs. Everybody's happy and everybody's carrying on and it's just a celebration. Well, I know it's a celebration for them in heaven, but listen, at my funeral, when I die in about 60 years, <laughs> I hope somebody cries. Don't you? I mean, can you imagine living a life in such a way that nobody's sad that you're gone? Yes, we celebrate that they're in heaven, and it is a grand day of rejoicing for them. But for those of us who are left behind, it's a sad day. Loss is real. The pain is deep. And I think Christians are the only ones that love in such a way that they experience the depth of that separation it's appropriate to be sad it's appropriate to grieve and to mourn Keanu Reeves that great theologian <laughs> was asked in an interview what he believed happens after you die and he said well I believe that after you die the people that love you will miss you that's pretty profound. I hope somebody misses me. I honestly was at a funeral once, small rural Iowa town. A guy had died. I was related to someone in our church, went there, and the pastor was about 87 and a half. He'd been there forever. He was one of those leaders that was leading by personhood. No one questioned him. I've never, Pastor Larry, been at a funeral like this in my life. This, this crusty old preacher walked up to the podium, and he said, Look, this, bro this person that died, I'm not going to pretend they went to heaven. We all know how I lived, and every one of us knows that he went straight to hell. And I'm here to tell you how you don't have to go there. And I looked around, and you know what everyone was doing? They were doing this. Some people may not be missed. I don't want to be one of those. Sorrow is real. The pain is deep. Sackcloth is appropriate for some days. But it's not appropriate for everyday use. It's not. Some days it needs to be put away. You have to decide to get rid of your sackcloth. 
Carol and I have good friends. We got to know them in the first church that we pastored, and they had lost a daughter when she was 12 or 13, I believe. They were farmers and had cattle, and they had loaded up a semi full of cattle and were taking a load to Alabama uh, to a ranch, cattle ranch there. And he had this fear. This little girl that was born was the apple of their eye, the joy of their life. And he had this fear that if he ever let her out of his sight, something awful was going to happen. And she didn't ride with anybody else, didn't go anywhere without him. He hovered over her all of her life until that particular trip. She wanted to ride with her uncle, my friend's brother, wanted to ride with her uncle in the cab of the semi. And he thought, well, that'll be fine. It'll be okay. And they took off for Alabama. When they hit about Nashville, this terrible storm set in. You couldn't even see hardly the end of the truck with the rain pouring down. And as they're traveling on the interstate, hit some slick hydroplane and the semi jackknifed and rolled over. The girl was thrown from the semi onto the highway. It didn't kill her, but then she was trampled by the cattle that stampeded when the when the, when the trailer tipped over and the doors opened, they ran over her, and for the next several days, she was in ICU and died in the hospital. But one time, he'd let her not ride with him. Can you imagine, in addition to pain, the guilt? He was not a Christ follower. It was through that experience that he came to know Jesus. He and I had several talks. He wouldn't even say her name, wouldn't talk about her. I wasn't allowed to ask anything about her. It was private, and I said to him, as my friend, I said, you know, there's a door that's closed here that you and I can only walk so far together because you've locked the door to that part of your life, and it keeps us from being able to travel some other roads side by side. Someday, you're going to have to let Jesus into that room and clean it out, and when you do, you're going to have to let other people into that room. Some months, years later, other things had happened, but I'll never forget this day. He said, I need to tell you something that Jesus did in my heart. It was a few days before the girl's birthday. And on the daughter's birthday, that was a day of mourning for him. Didn't go to work. He was grouchy to people. He would do whatever he wanted, just get away. You know, eat double ice cream, three pies, whatever he wanted to do, just get away. And he said that God spoke to him and said, you're no longer grieving your daughter's death, you're hiding behind your pain so that you can express your own carnality. It's time to stop hiding behind your pain and blaming your unchristlike activity on the death of your daughter. That was revolutionary. What happens? People who let their pain identify them hide behind it and use it as an excuse to behave in ways that they want to behave but can't otherwise because they don't have the excuse. How many are hearing what I'm saying? Well, it's because of that. It's because of this pain. It's because of what happened to me. It's because of what my parents did to me. I was abused as a child. I know horrible things have happened to people, but you can't wear that clothing for the rest of your life. You have to decide that a day comes that you say, Jesus, take this robe off my back and I will not be identified anymore as a child of God by the sackcloth that I used to wear. I will not be identified by that. You can remove your sackcloth. And when you can't do it, God can. In Shakespeare's Macbeth, Act 5, Scene 3 has this exchange. Macbeth. How does your patient, doctor? Doctor, not so sick, my lord. 
as she is troubled with thick-coming fancies that keep her from rest. Macbeth, cure her of that. Canst thou not minister to a mind diseased, pluck from the memory a rooted sorrow, raise out of the written troubles of the brain, and with some sweet oblivious antidote, cleanse the stuffed bosom of that perilous stuff which weighs on her heart. The doctor's response, therein the patient must minister to himself. You can't fix what somebody doesn't want to have fixed. You can't fix. Sometimes you have to minister to yourself. I'm privileged to co-host a radio show with David Breer called I've Been There. And to hear stories of people that have overcome. And this past week, Sharon Thomas shared her story. And, um, and I would encourage all of you to listen to it. How do you find it? Go to Facebook. I've been their page, and you'll find Sharon Thomas's story there. She grew up in a horribly abusive household. Her father had what are called then, were called then war spells. We'd call it PTSD. If a gunshot went off or a firecracker went off, he'd run out in the yard with a shovel, start digging a... Uh, start digging a, 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 a foxhole and roll himself into that. He would have the kids, when he, even when he's in his right mind, stand out in the yard and hold a cigarette in their hand and shoot it out of their hand. Can you imagine the fear of that moment? Put stuff on their head and shoot it off. He'd be drunk and have them stand out there. The screaming, the yelling, the beating of the mother and went on and on with her story. And there was a moment in that story as she's telling it that God gave her what I believe was a prophetic word for somebody in the listening audience. There are those times that God just gives you a word, and she was looking straight ahead with single focus, even though there was no one in front of her, and began to pour out her heart. And listen to me, church. We talk about the gifts of the Spirit and why they aren't happening in here as much as we'd like to see them. And I'm telling you that prophecy doesn't come so we can prop one another up. Prophecy comes so we can storm the gates of hell and set the captives free. We need to exercise the gifts of the Spirit out in the marketplace and bring back the people that have been reached for the kingdom. And she had a word of prophecy from God. And as she's talking, I said to her, Sharon, I don't understand. With all that you've been through and you've shared, you ought to either be in a mental hospital or a serial killer. Oh, how did that change? She said it was the hardest thing in the world to do but to forgive my father. She was speaking at a conference and someone said to her, your story's not authentic, it's not real, it's not powerful because you've never forgiven your father. You've got to take that next step. And she shared more than this. But what struck me was in the moment, she got alone with God and she said, Jesus, I need one more time one more time will you let me feel all of the pain, all the sorrow, all of the grief so that I never forget. Let me feel it one more time and then will you take it away from me once and for all. And I can't tell you cognitively how that happens. I can't tell you therapeutically what the change is, but I can tell you spiritually, Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit comes on the scene and what man can't do and therapy can't can't do and counseling can't do I'm telling you that the power of God can do in an instant and she said from that day to this one I've been free sometimes you have to just come to him and say Jesus take it from me and how will he understand did you forget 
that as he hung on the cross, he cried out to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows where you are. He knows where you've been. He knows the sorrow that you feel. Go to him, and I'm telling you, he can lift the burden off you again once and for all. He can set you free. He can set you free. God, let me feel it one more time, and then he took it away. Ignoring it isn't enough. Changing the narrative won't make it go away. You need a miracle of the power of God that I can't explain that will take the sackcloth. And I'm telling you right now, I'm going to tell you right now, how many of you believe that Jesus can liberate someone in this room from the sackcloth and enslaves them? How many of you believe that? That's what he's going to do in a little bit. Someone needs to hear me right now. You've been wearing that robe for far too long. You've let it define you. You've made excuses because of it. And it's time this morning in a few moments for Jesus to lift that off your back. And if you'll respond to the Spirit of God, he will change your mourning into dancing. And it'll be a new day of joy in your life. Because then you got to put on some party clothes. You come to my house for a party and you're wearing a black suit and you're in mourning, I'm going to send you over to somebody else's house. <laughs> if you show up at the door at my house for a party and you say, don't expect anything tonight, this is going to be a real dirge. Well, you'll improve it if you go home. When you go to a party, shouldn't you expect to have fun? Has anybody ever been to a party here? I mean, a good one, not the ones that you don't remember the next morning. <laughs> but one where relationships are built and you laugh till you cry. Then you just have a good time together. Listen, you can't live at a party. Nobody can live on that high all the time. God didn't intend you to live at a party. People that are that happy are damaged. You can't live there. But you need to go to some. Some of you need to go to a party. Much of life is lived in the ordinary. But there's a place of joy. <laughs> when the prodigal son came home, the father said, family, let's have a family meeting. We need to figure out how this happened. And then we're going to go on a book tour and share with other families how this happened. So that, no, no, shut up. It's time to party. What did dad say? Kill the fatted calf. Break out the instruments. Put on your dancing shoes. Our son that was lost is found. He was dead. Now he's alive. And let's celebrate. Let's dance. Let's enjoy the blessing of God. I have a video. Are you okay if, if we stay here till we're done? There'll, there'll be ice cream for you. It's too hot outside anyway. I want you to watch a short video called Post-Eucharist Anglican Joy. That sound exciting?
You'll, you, this will be fun. Give the Anglicans a hand. This video goes on for about five minutes and it made the rounds on social media with a great deal of discussion and negative response from the traditional liturgical community. Typical quote was like this from St. John Chrysostom who says when addressing the spirit that should be in the church, nothing so becomes a church as silence and good order. Noise belongs to theaters and baths and public processions and marketplaces. But where doctrines and such doctrines are the subject of teaching, there should be stillness and quiet and calm reflection. Yes, there are times at the cemetery, I mean the seminary. <laughs> there needs to be that kind of study. But God wants to give us dancing clothes. Saturday, I was at the family leader conference. Pastor Nathan was leading worship. Did a great job, by the way. And uh, about 10 minutes, three different times. I couldn't be there for the first session because I had other commitments, but I went over to be there for the second session. And I'm standing at the back afterwards, and a pastor friend of mine who had not ever heard Pastor Nathan um, complimented my worship leading, but he said it was a little tougher. The first session i said why is that well he said people weren't really responsive they're just talking carrying on and he said pointed at another pastor that i didn't know that was sitting at a table we're standing at the back and he said when pastor nathan began to lead worship he said let's all stand and let's worship and nobody people just kept talking kept sitting but about 10 or 12 people stood and this other pastor looked at my friend and said well at least we know who the pentecostals are I'm telling you, they're expecting us to lead the way. Hello? Amen. <laughs> we may as well do it. So this morning, with heads bowed, eyes closed, or eyes bowed, head closed, whichever one appropriately fits you, we're not going to do it that way. I want everyone heads up looking at me. Because we could have a call here that would say, Oh, I wish you could feel what I feel right now. You could have an altar call that lets you sneak to the front, and I don't want you to sneak to the front. I'm telling you that there's some people here that you've been wearing the sackcloth of mourning for too long, and this is your morning to put it off. And if you're too embarrassed to step forward, you're not going to get freedom anyway. And so I'm going to ask you right now, man, woman, balcony, 
if you would get up from where you are and say, God put his finger on my heart. I've let my pain identify me. I've worn sackcloth for too long. And I want Jesus to take it off my back this morning. If that's you, I want you to get up right now. Come on, right now. Get up right now and come to the front. Come on, right now. I want you right here, right now. I want you to get up. And you'll notice that it's, it's hard sometimes for men to come, but the men are coming too. You are in a place where you need Jesus to take that sackcloth off your back. Come on. This is your morning to get victory. I need you to leave a row where I can get in front of you, take a half step back, and get in a single line if you're up here for prayer. Uh, Diane, if you could lead it that way just a little bit. I want to get in front of you, get in one line. And here's what's going to happen. Listen, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to come by and lay my hand on your head, and I'm going to rebuke the clothing of sackcloth. I'm going to rebuke the time of mourning. Let's go ahead and shift this way a little bit. Everybody take a few steps this way. We're going to rebuke that, and here's what I expect. When my hand hits your head, I want you to expect a change of clothing. I want you to expect that the robes of sackcloth will fall off of you. And God is going to give you party clothes and set you free. Now, if anyone else believes that God can do that this morning, I want you to get up right where you are and line up behind these. Come on, right now. I need you all to come. I need a bunch of you to come. I need a bunch of you to come begin to pray. And listen, those of you that I lay my hand on, I don't want you to say, oh, thank you, Jesus. When I lay my hand on your head, I want you to begin to shout praise. There's a shout of joy in the camp. The Bible tells us that David's praise was heard throughout the land. When the day of Pentecost came, there was a noise they heard all over town. And I want you to begin to praise him. Come on, everyone in the house. I want you to begin to praise him right now. I'm simply going to touch you. And I'm going to command right now, sackcloth be gone in Jesus' name. Sackcloth be gone in Jesus' name. Sackcloth be gone. Come on, magnify him. In Jesus' name right now, sackcloth, mourning, sorrow, pain, and suffering. I command it to be gone. Sackcloth. Oh, yes. Take the sackcloth and give joy in Jesus' name. Come believe it. Believe it. Magnify him. Magnify him. Joy in the name of Jesus. Joy in the name of Jesus. Come believe it. Reach for it. Joy in the name of Jesus. Joy in the name of Jesus. We believe it for right now. Right now. Take it. Lift your hands and magnify him. Come on. Get outside yourself. Get outside yourself. Put at least one hand in the air right now. Praise him now. Praise him. Praise him. Praise him. Praise him. There is joy in the name of Jesus. Joy in the name of Jesus. Same old fight. Oh, oh, and when we run the things we know. 
language you use when the devil comes to take your joy with all of your anointing you say shut your dirty mouth the word of God is my confession he's going to lie to you 
He's going to tell you that it isn't real and it isn't true. Listen, I remember after our son died, the first day that I didn't feel bad about him being gone. And I felt guilty because I didn't feel bad. The devil tried to steal my joy. It's a process. It's a challenge. I understand that. But you don't live at the house of pain. You live at the house of victory. Hello, are you hearing me right now? You don't live in the house of pain. You live in the house of victory. Are you hearing me this morning? I said you don't live in the house of pain. You live in the place of victory. And when you have pain along the way, when you experience suffering along the way, you know that he is going to reverse the suffering and turn it into joy. One last time, I want you to lift your hands and I want you to give him all the praise you can muster. I want you to magnify him with everything you've got. Let me hear your voice. God up much longer it will be my home going what a way to go listen here's the trick here's the trick when kids go to camp every night they shout to the top of their lungs and then they come home and sit like they're a petrified piece of stone and I remember at camp one year they said do you want to know why that is because we haven't learned to translate what we experience at the altar into our life every day. And so if you want this to continue, get up tomorrow morning while you're brushing your teeth and start to sing. If you've got pain, he's 